Well, hidey ho there, neighbors. You guys good today or what? You, you clapped for the offering jam. You must be in a good a good place today. So uh, before we get started, uh, I want to bring some people out right now. These are very special people. Uh, they have meant a great deal to Redemption Church, and so uh, we want to go ahead and love on them the best way we know how. And so right now, Wes and Mitzi Feltz, why don't you guys come on out here right now? This is Wes and Mitzi. I think I'm the shortest person up here. All right, so... Um, no, but, but, but Wes has been one of our deacons that has overseen both junior high and, at times, junior high and high school, and uh, has done a great job for us. His wife has been a tremendous support, put together some really amazing camps and trips to Mexico, that kind of thing. So they have been a true gift to us. And a couple of months ago, Wes came to me and said, hey, you know, we want to kind of wrap things up for us. We've, we've had this season. We're going to go on to a new season in our life. And so he said it was going to be at the end of May. And, and I remember when you told me, um, and it was, I mean, I was excited for you to move on to whatever was next. At the same time, it caused me to really reflect on how much we've been through together. You know what I mean? It's like you start, you kind of just do life and, and you don't kind of pause and, and think back some, over some of these things. Um, and if I get teary, it's because I'm a feeler, all right? So, um, but uh, I, I was thinking about this. this. This all started for us. I mean, we've been together since way before redemption started, a year, year and a half, I think, maybe somewhere in there before even redemption got underway. And so you've been through a lot of the crazy with us, both of you, and, and uh, was thinking through that first Monday morning, 8.30 a.m. at, at uh, the Bailey's house, where it's like, we're starting a church. What do we call it? You know? And, and you've been with us for all of that. You know, and uh, that first week was crazy, and you were just pulling stuff together and making connections, and and we wouldn't have been in here for that first Sunday if it wasn't for you guys, and um, getting our hub together and getting the offices together and doing our ministry and loving on my kids. You guys have loved on my kids. You guys have been what my kids have known, and so um, Ellen and I, we love you. Our church loves you. Our elders love you. Thank you for what you guys have done, and, and uh, we, we're going to pray for you this morning in a good way and send you off to whatever God has next, but boy, we, we do. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done. Honestly, we just, we wouldn't be here in a lot of ways if it wasn't for you guys, and thank you for all the time, every time. If there's anything you know about Wes, it could be falling apart in, in two things from Wes. It'll be fine. Um, it'll be fine, and then he laughs. It'll be fine. <laughs> you know, like, the greatest joy, if we could bottle that and sell it, you would be a trillionaire, all right? So, um, so thank you for always seeing God was bigger than the problem and always facing it with joy. So we want to give you guys a gift, say thank you for all that you've done, and uh, we want to pray for you right now. And so just join me in prayers. We pray for them and pray for our morning. Jesus, I thank you for Wes and Mitzi and the kids. I thank you for what they have done for us as a church. And again, just I just thought through all the countless things that were certainly a, a, above a lot of our pay grade, and, and Wes knew how to fix it, or how to do it, or how to hook it up, or how to change it. Uh, and I just thank you for that level of investment. I think it was a parent whose kids were affected by their, their ministry, their activity, their love, their investment, their friendship. 
And so I pray that as they uh, go into, again, this next chapter, that not only will you bless them, but you will use them and you will um, make yourself known deep within their soul so that they just sense your presence and sense your joy and sense your peace. And so thank you for the season we've had with them. Thank you for the gift that they have been. And again, we will, we will miss them, but we are, we are excited for them. And so uh, I pray for them to go out and do great and mighty things. And I pray for us this morning that we will learn of you so that we all might do great and mighty things in your name, with your gospel, for your glory. We love you and praise you in your good name. Amen. Hey, would you guys give these two a big hand? Uh, thank you so much for that, you guys. Thank you so much. So, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please, right now, open up to the book of First Peter. Yes, we are still in First Peter, chapter 4. That is where we're hanging out this morning. And as you are on your way there, uh, man, you know what uh, I don't care for? You know what I don't care for? Some of you are going, cats. That's true. Um, some of you are saying, no, he doesn't like NASCAR. That's true, too. Um, some are saying rap, and that's true. I share a lot here. Um, no, here, here's what I really don't like more than anything else. Um, I, don't, I don't like to be wrong, right? I don't like to be wrong. And if we're all honest, none of us like to be wrong, right? It just runs aground on everything in us. When somebody says, you're wrong, we instantly kind of put up our dukes, right? We want to, dukes, that's really, yeah. Um, put up your dukes. What is this? It's like a bare knuckle bra. Okay, so... And, and, and we, we kind of have that reaction to it because we don't like to be wrong. We especially don't like to be wrong when we think we're actually right, right? So you're having a debate with somebody and you're certain, you're so certain, what do you do? You grab your laptop and you go to Google to prove yourself that you are true, right? You are right, you are accurate, right? Now here's why this is so difficult in my mind. Um, it's difficult when it comes to being a Christian and communicating the gospel to the world around us. Because at the core of what we are saying when we communicate the gospel to an unbelieving world, at the center what we are saying is, you're wrong. I mean, isn't that the challenge? What we're saying is, uh, you think you've been right, you think you're going the right direction and doing the right thing, and you think your activities and affections and attitudes are acceptable, but but you're, you're wrong. And, and that wrong is called sin. That wrong is called enmity with God or uh, this conflict between us and God. And so the start of the gospel is we have to admit we're wrong and that only God is right. But that God has provided a way through Christ and his cross to make us right with God provided we admit we're wrong. I mean, isn't that the challenge? This is why so many people want to push back or be bothered or say Christians are judgmental or Christians have too high of a standard or Christians are too exclusive because, again, the core of the gospel is you are wrong, but God can make you right if you admit you're wrong. That's what's so hard. This is why there is always in every season, in every culture, over every period of time, there is opposition to the gospel. 
right? In fact, this is what Peter is referring to back at the end of chapter 3 in the text that I really chose to not get into because nobody quite knows what Peter is fully saying. But, but we can kind of glean the basic idea where he says, um, there was this guy named Noah. And Noah was a herald of righteousness. Uh, Peter actually says that in his second letter, just after this one, that uh, Noah was a herald of righteousness, but the wicked culture rejected that. And so for the entire time building the ark, Noah was rejected. He was persecuted. He suffered as he was a herald of righteousness because he was telling the world, you're wrong. And they go, no, 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 you're wrong. Until one day it was shown that God was right and Noah was right in relationship to God, and so he was cradled in the ark of grace and removed from God's judgment. Peter says, in the same way, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not accept him. His own did not receive him. His own did not want him. They were a generation in darkness, and they did not want the light, lest their deeds be exposed, and so they rejected Jesus. He suffered until the day that he was crucified and had victory over his enemies, and then was risen in glory and ascended into all majesty and dominion and authority, right? And, and he did that to provide victory for us. And so in both instances, what Peter says is, you know what? Yes, when you say that there is a standard and that people are wrong unless they embrace the standard, you're going to feel suffering. You're going to be opposed. But that's just for a season, Right? That's just for a brief blink in all of eternity if you are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. If you just own that, it's just for a small portion of time. You're going to do well because that's what Jesus did. It's just for now. And then, man, reward. No, it's just for now, but then reward. See, Peter uses this as our motivator, right? He's letting us know, if you follow Jesus, yes, you're telling the world it's wrong apart from God, and you're going to feel the pressure, but if you just endure, if you just take it, it's only for a time. And then there's something great on the other side. And so he starts in chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, since Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. He's going back to saying, okay, because he did this, because he was willing for a time to suffer, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He says, start putting yourself in Jesus' sandals. Start taking upon yourself the model that you see in Christ and start conducting life in that sense. In other words, you go, all right, it's just for a time. I'm going to have that mindset. I'm going to gear up in this way. I'm going to take that on. That will be my filter. How did Jesus do it when he was suffering? I want to do it like he did it, because again, I know there's something greater on the other side. So then the question is, how did he do it? How how did he gear up? What do we learn from Jesus? I, I, I think there's three things that we can see clearly in him. We see an attitude. We see a response. And then we see an outlook. Now, the first place I see the attitude is in Luke chapter 22, right? And in Luke 22, Jesus has just done the upper room scene. He's dealt with the disciples. One of them has taken off to betray him. Satan has entered the heart of Judas. This is one of those bittersweet scenes, and it's probably never been so bitter and never been so sweet at the same time for Jesus. And so he takes three of the guys, and he says, we just need to pray, I need to pray. The, the weight of this is beginning to close in. And so Jesus begins to pray, and in there you see the attitude in verse 42 of Luke 22. He says, Father, right? 
If you are willing, remove this cup from me, the cup of wrath, the cup of suffering, the cup of dread, the cup of separation, the cup of despair, right? Remove that from me. Nevertheless, this is where you see the attitude, not my will, but yours be done. See, the first thing we see in the attitude of Jesus is we see focus. We see focus, and the focus is God, your will. Not my will, not my comfort, not my ease, not my sensibility. Your will, God, I want your will. And when we think about this, if we incorporate this mind of Christ into us as he suffered, we go, okay, then that should be our thing. Our focus is saying, God, I just want your will. And this is hard sometimes. In fact, I think it's hard often. Because what we are acknowledging in this is we're saying, you know what, God? Um, I want what you want. Now, I don't know what that means. Because what you might want for me is going to mean in this life, it's difficult. And in this life, I suffer loss. And in this life, I may not be respected. And in this life, I may not be loved. And in this life, I might not even keep my life. We forget we have brothers in China, in uh, Iraq, in Syria. We have brothers and sisters all over the world that are going to lose their lives today for what we're talking about. Right? So let us not lose sight of the fact of our brothers and sisters in other places where this is life and death real. We worry about whether somebody will think we're a little bit ignorant. They worry about whether they're going to lose their head. It's very different for us than them. But it's still suffering for us. And so we want to have that mind that says, you know what, God, not my will, but your will. And I don't know what your will is as far as um, what it might mean for my everyday practical life. But what I do know is that you are good. And what I do know is that you know better than I do. And what I do know is that as I follow hard after you, it ends in reward. It ends in blessing. It ends in encouragement. And between now and then, there's something deep that happens within my soul that you provide to make it possible for me to endure with joy and peace. And so I don't know what this is going to mean for me today, but I know what it means ultimately because, again, I have a focus on your will. That's exactly what Jesus did. That was his attitude. He said, not my will, but your will be done. This attitude then drove into the next part of his mindset, which is the response he had while suffering. The attitude is, God, your will. Even if I suffer in this life, it's your will. That led to his response. And I just flip a page over into Luke 23, where we see the thinking of Jesus as he was hated and opposed and mocked. In chapter 23, verse 34, it says in verse 33 that he was crucified with criminals on the left and the right of his cross. The crowd is mocking, and Jesus prays. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then instantly, here's what it says, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, now here's what I find interesting about this. I mean, the response you see is forgiveness, right? The attitude was focus. The response is forgiveness. The attitude was God's will. The response is God's mercy. What I find so intriguing about this is that Jesus is looking and he says, forgive them. And in a blink, when the word forgiveness leaves his lips, the guys right there go, can you go through his pockets to see if there's loose change, basically? In other words, they didn't go, oh, he said forgive them. They just kept doing their thing, man. They didn't care about the forgiveness. 
They didn't care about the heart. They, they were just there to, who gets the tunic? What else is there to divvy up? See, I, I bring that up because, again, it's going to be very hard in a world that may mock you or cause you to suffer or think you're silly to say, forgive them, even if they want to go through your pockets for loose change. Even if they want to just blow that off. If you say, man, I forgive you, and they go, whatever, you're a dweeb. All right. I mean, that's going to be a hard thing to do. But, but that's the response. It's forgiveness. It's God's mercy. All of this is true because Jesus had an outlook. The outlook is in Hebrews chapter 12. The writer has just told us about many people in the Old Testament that had faith. And some of them in their faith saw great victories and great accomplishments and experienced rich reward and very tangible ways in their regular lives. But then others, man, they really suffered quite a bit for their faith. They were wandering, destitute, and sheepskins and goatskins and sawn in two and cut asunder and all this stuff, all in faith. And it says, reflecting on those people, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross what is the outlook the outlook that Jesus had was faith and he looked toward God's reward Right? So his, his first thing was to say, you know what, um, I'm trusting the will of God. And as I do so, I will display the mercy of God because I believe in the reward of God. And the writer of Hebrews, who by the way, I think is Luke, so own that one. Um, as he says this, he says, this is why you want to lay aside your sin. This is why you want to say no to it, right? You want to run with endurance the race that is set before you. And you set your vision only on Jesus, right? A single-minded devotion to use what he did to your health and advantage and strength. You look to Jesus because he is the author and the actualizer of the faith that we need to go through this. And when you do, you keep in mind there is joy on the other side. There is unstoppable, unquenchable, unrobbable joy. And this is the hardest part because we have to actually believe there's real joy. Right? If we don't, if we go, no, 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 no. This is just sort of, it's just good ethics for me, Christianity. It's just healthy to be a Christian. And, and it stops there, then we're going to be really disappointed because, um, again, like I said, we have friends in other parts of the world that would say, ah, it's not terribly healthy here in prison. It's not terribly healthy here in a, a cargo container in the middle of the desert with no water and my kids all crying and hungry because we're fleeing because we claim the name of Christ. They're not going to say it's healthy living. Many Christians don't find it healthy living to be a Christian, but for the joy set before them, they endure. Right? Because that's, that's, that's the outlook. That's the outlook we're to have. That's why Peter is giving us this picture of Jesus. Look at Jesus, he says. Look at Jesus and how you live. Look at Jesus and how you filter. Look at Jesus and how you respond to life. For the joy that is set before you, you endure. This is in part why if we go back to then 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He says, arm yourself. I mean, just think about that. He says, put on the filter 
and be armed with that filter. And, and what this is really getting to is that we have to be prepared, every one of us, to go William Wallace on this one, right? So you wake up in the morning, and here's the first thing out of your mouth. I'm going to pick a fight. I'm going to pick a fight today, and tomorrow I'm going to pick a fight tomorrow, and every single day I'm going to pick a fight. Now here's the question. Who do you pick the fight with? Some would say pick the fight with Satan. I'd say don't go pick a fight with Satan because he's mean. I actually actually don't see anywhere in the New Testament where it tells us to go pick a fight with Satan. I see where it tells us to arm up against Satan, to stand our ground against Satan, to be wise about the schemes of Satan, but I don't see where it tells us to go pick a fight with Satan. Others say we've got to pick a fight with the world. Well, we would probably at Redemption know that you don't go pick a fight with the world. Right? We're here to reach the world, not pick a fight with the world. Um, I I think it's real simple. The, the, The real center of your fight is with you. You have to wake up every single morning and say, I am picking a fight with myself. You have to go uh, Jim Carrey and Lion Liar, 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 right? What are you doing? I'm kicking my own butt! Cleaned up for content. All right, so. um, But that's really what Peter's getting at. Right? He says, what you want to do is pick a fight with yourself. Because I believe in our Christian lives that we are perhaps our own worst enemy. Right? Because there's going to be those seasons, those times, those days where we get worn or bored or kind of depressed. And, and then we get weak. And we start thinking, no, 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 this life provides. This life can uplift me. This life can strengthen me. This life will inflate me. So we, we stop going to war with ourselves. And, and then from that, we invite all kinds of crazy in. I, I think about Paul. Man, I love Paul for his honesty. Some people see Paul as sort of this stoic dude that, that wasn't terribly transparent, just told everybody else how to live. I totally disagree. I was doing this with my son just last week, sitting on the porch. I, I said, um, do you realize Paul is this very transparent guy that admitted his own sin and his own struggle and his own frustration in that? And he's like, no, I didn't know that. We were walking through some of the passages. And I love Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He starts in verse 24. He says, uh, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? I drop down to verse 26. He speaks for himself at this point. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. Literally, in the Greek, he says, I pummel myself. I pummel myself. I punch myself in the spiritual face every morning. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, the Christian life, I've realized, requires two things. It requires surrender and conflict. You surrender to Jesus, and you have conflict with yourself. And these things run in tandem every single day. Uh, I'm surrendering to Jesus and warring against myself. Surrendering to Jesus, war against myself. Let the Spirit do the work, fight against the flesh. That's, that's really how it works. But the other part of this that I want to drive home is that the conflict that we engage in with ourselves is not to deprive ourselves of some enriching thing. It's not like we're going, I'm going to war with myself every day and I'm being deprived of the stuff that is awesome. No, we go to war with ourselves every day and we suffocate disparaging things that rob us of true life and joy. See, that's really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, oh, so I got a loss. I, got a, I, I don't have anything fun. 
No, I'm talking about us getting to the point where we realize the things that we think give us fun, give us courage, give us joy, give us peace, give us hope, really don't do that if they're apart from Christ. They're things that rob us of life and rob us of abundance and rob us of richness. It's where we start to realize, like Paul, that he says, you know, I, I, I don't want just life as it is. I, I don't want to just settle for the average I want a growing desperation for God. I want this sense that there's something more and it can't be attained if I make the investment. That was Paul. This is why he's beating himself into submission. He wants to experience a righteous satisfaction in life. And so he says, man, I do everything I can do to beat that desire of sin off, to press in close to what God has for me. Part of the way this is displayed in the Christian life is the reduction of craving and committing of sin, which is exactly where Peter goes. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Right? In other words, what he's saying is uh, people who understand their calling and their purpose and the promises of God and the mission of God, people that really understand that, the way that that is materialized is that sin becomes less and less and less a part of their life because God is becoming more and more and more. Sin, it's not just that sin loses its sting, it's that the cravings that we have for our sins, those begin to evaporate when that sense of, man, I I just want more of him sinks in. Right? Where where somebody says, you know what, Um, I would prefer to suffer over sin. Right? Because that's, that's going to be some of the tension. There's going to be some times where our Christian faith is met with a, a problem or a struggle and, and we're left with a choice. I, I either suffer for my faith or I sin so I don't experience suffering. I either deny him or I admit him. I either go with the crowd or I go against the flow. And then with that, I, I, I suffer. So oftentimes, that challenge between suffering and sin is a tough one. But Peter says, man, the people that get this, the people that, that see God more clearly, that want God more passionately, that desire God more wholly, those, man, sin, it, it loses its pull. It loses its attractiveness. It loses its magnetism in their lives. They become so love-filled with God, so loyal to his Purposes that they willingly and joyfully and even eagerly suffer loss because of the gain that comes with that. Sure, there may be some inconvenience, there may be some boredom, there may be some frustration, there may be some banishment, there may be some mockery. You might be overlooked for certain things, you might be teased behind your back, you might be gossiped about, you might be slandered, you might suffer these types of losses in life, but it's all worth it because Jesus is more. See, this is, this is where Peter wants to take us. This is where Jesus wants to take us, that he is more, right? Because when that roots in your soul, that's, that's what you want. When that roots in your soul, um, what you begin to realize is that when you have to choose between sin or suffering, you find that you're not really suffering, but that there is a delight even amidst life's suffering. You, you get more through the suffering than you would ever get from the sin, right? So let, let me give you an example. Um, 
one of the things my wife says to our kids, which is a huge blessing for me, I'm always blessed when I hear her say it, is she'll say, um, you know, your dad suffers a lot for our family. Now, that's in a good way, not a bad way. You're like, I don't, I don't suffer around. Oh, my family. Um, your dad's willing to go without. Your dad's willing to give up things. Your dad's willing to suffer, right, for the sake of the family. Now, Here's what's true. Uh, every time I go without, every time I say, I don't need this, let's do this instead, or whatever else, um, I, don't, I don't go, oh, I'm suffering. See, for me, this is reasonable. In fact, for me, this is joyful. Right? Every time I go, no, no, I, I'm just going to go without. I'm going to do this for honor instead. We'll do this for grace and we'll make this happen instead. I don't, I don't really need that anyway. I don't want that. There is a joy within me. This is, I'm, I'm providing for my family in a way that, sure, I might, quote, miss out, but in missing out, I gain much more, right? And, and some of you have experienced that, where you go, it's not really, I'm not giving up anything. I'm gaining by giving up. See, that's the essence of, of, of what happens with, with sin. When we give up sin, we're not giving up anything. We're gaining when we give up greed, when we give up gluttony, when we give up lust, when we give up discontent, when we give up bitterness, when we give up anger, when we give up whatever it is, when you give up, you're not losing, you're gaining. You're gaining. The challenge for us sometimes is we're like addicts to our sin, right? So if, if uh, you're an addict, you think your drug of choice fills you, completes you. You think your drug of choice makes you clairvoyant and more clear thinking than everybody around you. And you think you need that drug at all costs. And sin is like a drug, right? So we, we have our sin and it becomes our comfort, becomes our friend, becomes our guide, becomes our idol. And well, I wouldn't know what to do without my sin. I, I love the sin. I want the sin. I desire the sin. Even the sins that we say we don't want, if we don't conquer, we still want. Right? So we have that and it clouds our thinking. And so we think this is what makes our world go round. But if you remove those things, you consciously say, I'm going to war. I'm waking up. I'm going to war. I'm arming myself with this. And you push it off. After a while, your, your brain begins to clear. Your soul begins to clear. Your conscience begins to clear. And, and you're like, wow, what I really thought brought me comfort here only brought me slavery. Only brought me grief and fear that I was going to be caught or, or, or a sense of just every day I'd wake up discontent. Or these things, I would do them thinking they'd fill me, and then afterwards they didn't fill me. But now I'm starting to breathe. I'm starting to feel life in me. And then as you continue down that path more and more, eventually you look back and go, everything that I thought was gain, that was loss. Everything I thought was giving me something was robbing me of everything. Why would I ever want to go back to that? But see, so you have to go through the journey of saying, first of all, I'm going to go to war with myself, and I'm going to fight those sins until my conscience begins to clear, and then I'll realize, oh, there's better life on the other side, and then you go further down the road this way. See, that's the essence of it. I remember this, man, this has been a long time. I think Emma was just a baby. Um, I, I was really active as an intern, and I ran a lot and just had a lot of activity, but then I became a pastor, and it put me at a desk. What didn't stop in my life was the box of Hostess Donuts every day and the 10 tacos from Senior Froggies for lunch. And I went from 170 to 220 pounds in a year. Family would come to visit and they, I, I would open the door and they'd be like, hey, you know, and they'd be like, long time, you know, and, and, uh, and, and so Matt, 
50 pounds in like a year, right? And, and so I, I remember finally at one point I said, you know what, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this life. I want to change it. I don't want to be lugging around 220 pounds anymore. So I, I'm going to do something about it. <clears throat> but no more boxes of donuts. No more 10 Senior Froggies tacos. Who can live without 10 Senior Froggies? Right? Like, I had to make decisions, so I went to this hard protein kind of eating regimen, right? So I carved out all the carbohydrates, so I thought, man, this is going to be a drag. No more midnight ice cream runs. I mean, I'm going to miss out, right? So, like, that's what it was. But then after a few weeks, I found that, you know what? I, I didn't even crave what I thought I was going to lose. I didn't crave it. Like, wow, that's weird. Do I want ice cream? I don't want any ice cream. I don't want, I don't want any donuts. And then as you lose weight and you feel healthier and you have more strength and vitality, you're like, man, why would I ever want to return to 220 pounds making midnight runs for donuts and ice cream? But you have to go through that because when I was in this phase, putting on the pounds, every day was like, uh, I need to go get my donuts. Oh, they're so glorious. Right? It's the same deal. It's only when I went to war with this mat and had the discipline that then my life was reoriented. And so in that same spirit with Peter here, when we take the spirit, spirit seriously and the gospel seriously and grace seriously, all wonderful gifts given to us to succeed, when we take it seriously, you know what? Our eyes are opened. Our spirits are transformed. And, and in that, we, we have new appetites. And that's where we want to be with those new appetites. He says in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this is why, right? All of this is to be true. So in this life, as we are now living, we don't live for the human passions. We live for the will of God. Now, when I was reading that this week, I'm like, wow, that sounds like kind of a drag, kind of polar ends of the spectrum. So you don't live anymore for fun, but fundamentalism, you know? That you don't live anymore to party, but to work. That's kind of the way it, it can seem. But here's Peter's point. Um, human passions, they are not nearly as rewarding as God's will. God's will is better. God's will is more fulfilling. God's will has higher pleasures. God's will offers deeper joy. God's will will give you a higher happiness. It's just so often, here's our temptation. We go, when it comes to the great tree of fruit, of delight and pleasure and enjoyment, I will take the fruit that falls to the ground more than I will climb the tree and find the good stuff. And here's the thing about the fruit that falls to the ground. These are the human pleasures. They riddle the ground. They're not hard to reach. And when you take them and you pick them up and you bite in, they are amazingly sweet. They're sweet. You know why? Because they're rotting. They're breaking down quickly. The sugars are uh, un uncoupling quickly within the rotting fruit. So rotting fruit can be sweet when it initially is beginning to go bad. It can be like, oh, this is nice. Now, there's not as much in there. It's not as good for you. It's going to fall apart quickly, but it's easy to get, and the world does it all the time. I'll take the lowly, ground-laying fruits because to climb the tree means I have to go to war with myself. To climb the tree takes energy, takes effort, it takes determination. I have to believe that up there in the tree is better stuff. So often, we don't want to put in the effort. So no, 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 I'll just go for the, the rotting fruit on the ground because there's still some sweetness in it. It doesn't last as long. Right? 
but there's still something there to be had. And so we go for the rotting stuff. More than the pleasures that God has to offer to us. This is the thing I increasingly am, I'm convinced about, um, is that as Christians, part of the way we, we rob ourselves is that we think biblical promises are just spiritual sayings. I want to say that again. The way we rob ourselves is we think biblical promises are just spiritual sayings. In other words, when Jesus says, I will give you a joy that no one can take away. I will give you a peace that surpasses understanding. You will be happy when you are persecuted. You will be happy when you are a peacemaker. You will be happy when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, I, I will give you a contentment that this world can never fulfill. We read all of these types of promises. You know what we say? That's a nice spiritual statement. I don't believe I'll ever experience a joy that no one can take away. I don't really believe that I have a peace that surpasses understanding. I don't really believe I'll ever be happy for suffering. So we go, just stitch that mother on a pillow and call it cute. Right? That's a cute saying. That's a sweet spiritual saying. Oh, yes, we should memorize that just as long as we don't believe it. Right? And I know that sounds a little barbed, but that's what I'm realizing. We rob ourselves. God says, do you see the promises I've given to you? I will give you all of these things. Jesus says, I came to give you life and life abundant. We go, that's a great verse. But we don't claim it as a promise and then climb the tree to reach that fruit. He's going to give us abundant life. Now let's go do our own thing and make a minimal investment into our spiritual health. That's a great spiritual statement. Right? This is where Peter wants to take us to a place that says, no, no, no. The deeper you press into God and the more you push against your sin, the more you experience the pleasures of God. The more you say no to sin, the more you live the rest of your life in this life, not for the passions of humans, but for the will of God that is way higher in things. Higher delights, higher joy, higher love, higher emotion, higher calling. All of that's true. It's there for us but it's not there for the casual us. It's not there for the casual us. We're gonna, I just want to kind of sail through this thing. I'll do Smash Bible every few days. I pray for five minutes. Call it done. That's casual us. That's casual us. And, and we're not going to experience this. It's always going to be spiritual statements. They're not going to be promises that we go, man, I've experienced this. I know that's a promise because I'm living that promise. We have to go under the tree, Right? We have to have this unabated reallocation of our energies that say, I, I want more. I believe it's there. I'm going to claim the promise. I'm going to go after it, right? And I'm going to believe in doing so. It's not loss, but it's, but it's gain. So that's what we want to live our time for. In fact, in verse 3, he talks about time. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He says, you know what, as Christians, we've already sown our wild, stupid oats anyway. Right? Well, the time past was sufficient for our folly, for our sin, for our chasing after lesser things. For some of us, that was up until we met Christ, and we said, man, I'm on a new trajectory, I'm going after that. For some of us, today may be the day where we go, you know what, um, uh, the time has passed for me being a lukewarm Christian. The time has passed for me being nominal. The time has passed for me not making much of an investment. The time has passed for me claiming Christ but picking up ground fruit. It's time to climb the tree. Right? We would say, Today is the day where I'm done. And that time has passed. I pray that that's true for all of us, including myself. 
right? That we go, the time has passed so that we don't keep doing the things that get us into trouble, to rob us of joy, to keep us on the ground instead of going into the tree. Then he lists out those things. He says, the time has passed, and that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Things like living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, you might read that list and go, uh, yeah, none of those are me, man. Not even yesterday, all right? So, those aren't me. Living in means this willful interaction with, giving your time to, being invested with, right? So, the time has passed for us giving that investment to things like sensuality, which is the absence of restraint, or passions, which is longing for the forbidden. Drunkenness is finding outside substances for inside problems. Orgies, by the way, which you always connect with just one thing. In Peter's day, could also mean riots, loudness, uh, rambunctiousness, right? All of that kind of qualified in the category of that. Drinking parties were all about overindulgence. Right? A lot of people didn't have a refrigerator with everything in it and a pantry, so you went to a drinking party and you could just overly indulge in a plethora of things. It was rare for their culture. And then lawless idols. Things that we say, you know what, you're a practical savior to my pragmatic hell and you can get me into a pragmatic heaven, so whatever it is. Right? So just this thing is my savior today that gives me what I want and gets rid of what I don't want. Right? All of those things. He says, the time has passed for having a quest for those things. Peter says, as Christians, don't do them, don't learn from them, don't invest into them, don't be entertained by them, and don't let your conscience be eroded through them. Now, we can look at this and say, you know what, this list isn't us. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it is, especially if we go down the road of saying, you know what, Maybe we don't do all of these things, but we are in a culture that does a lot of these things in a lot of different ways, and we ingest a lot of that every time we turn on the TV or push on on the radio or listen to a song or whatever it is. All of that is constantly communicating, and that's the world we live in. And we might even say, no, 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 this isn't even the world we live in. There may be some places in the world that are like this, but this isn't the world we live in. I I would disagree. I think it's very much the world we live in. In fact, I'm going to use a couple examples, and I really am keeping these PG, I promise. I I know some people may go like, oh, where's it going to go? I promise I'm keeping these PG. There were just things that I came across this week and I thought was interesting. The first thing he talks about, sensuality, the absence of restraint. And and so I'm going to bring up this graphic right here. This was an article this week. Did anybody read this? Syphilisaur, 79% in Rhode Rhode Island, thanks to social media? And it was really, I'm reading this article And basically, there's an app called Tinder, and it's just a way that people can go to the app and find somebody else that's looking for some kind of uh, escapade that they don't even know, totally just a stranger. They both go to the app and they're like, hey, you're three blocks away, we can connect, we we can do some stuff, right? And and, and so they said, it's just skyrocketing, 79%, AIDS is up like 30% in Rhode Island, gonorrhea is up a certain percentage according to the article and everything else, and it's just people just casually connecting, right? And, and the conclusion of the article is we haven't done a good job on teaching, uh, like, like, sex education. Like, I don't think that's the problem. <laughs> right? Like, they're educated. 
They, they just don't care. In other words, our, our culture's coming to a point in some segments where common sense out the window. I mean, we've educated for 20 years on how to keep this from happening, and now it's exploding. Every kid in the world, because they said at highest risk are uh, young adults, uh, Hispanics, African Americans. There's a list of things in there, gay and bisexual men. They kind of list out the high kind of, everybody that would be educated on a lot of things, it, it still just kind of runs headlong into, but these are my sensual desires. I don't have to think clearly. This is just what I, I want. Right? That's the world we're living in. Right? And, and, and if you have a young adult and they have a smartphone and you don't control their app downloads, there's a whole world open to them. There's a whole world open to them. And you go, well, I, I don't know. I don't want to know. Yeah, you want to know. You should make the investment because, again, young adults are highly at risk. Teenagers highly at risk right now for silly things because why? They have strong sensuality. And part of that is being informed all the time in their music, in their television, in their movies, informed, informed. It's all conscience writing, right? We do have a culture of sensuality. Passions. Passions for Peter are longing for the forbidden. I'm going to bring up another graphic, and this one I cleaned up quite a bit just so we could use it on Sunday. Um, <laughs> yeah, all those black boxes I had to put in there myself. Um, all right, so one of the largest pornographic sites on the internet um, this website in 2014 had 18 billion visits, right? So you think about the populace of the world, much bigger visited this site, right? And this site posted for 2014 the rankings of, and some of the color didn't come through, so I'll have to explain this, um, the rankings of number one through things that people were searching. Um, up at the top, the number one search was things related to teenagers. So when I talk about forbidden, right, and we go, well, what's going on in the mind of our populace? See, these kinds of stats give us a glimpse into the mind, right? So people go in the privacy of their own little world, and they go to a website, and they go, what can I look up? The number one thing they want to look up is something about teenagers. Um, in the blue box below it, you can't see those very well because they didn't come through on the graphic, but basically it's mom stepmom and older moms, right? So then in the top five, it's teens and then mom, mom, mom. And then I drop down a little bit further into another blue one and it's stepsister. By the way, it says stepsister was up 53%, largest spike was people wanted to find pornography related to stepsister. Also, they wanted to find stuff related to babysitter or related to teacher. I go back to this to go, if we want to crawl inside the mind of America when it comes to viewing habits online that pertains to this topic, what they are looking for is things that we used to really call kind of forbidden topics. Right? In other words, the passions, the forbidden passions, are the number one searched things now. Right? So it should sober us to go, oh, that's what's really going on. And, and when we look at the statistics of teenage boys, 90 plus percent have a pornography habit of some kind. We should go, okay, we, we want to be aware. We want to be in the know. I, I'm saying it because the gospel can free. The gospel can rid us of our shame. That's the awesome part of the gospel. But we have to be aware, and we have to go from, I don't want the sin anymore because it contaminates my thinking, to I want to get away from that so that I'm healthy, and eventually I crave greater, more delightful passions. Than, than these things. In other words, Peter says, don't waste your time with these lowly things that are only rotten fruit on the ground. 
He says, not only is there sensuality and passions, but also drunkenness. Again, we live in a culture that loves to intake, to regulate emotions in all kinds of ways. Talks about orgies, which, like I said, doesn't even have to be sexual. It can just be rambunctious. Just turn on reality television. Right? It's riotous. I mean, I, just a lot of the reality shows, there, there's a camera there saying, fight, 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 right? I need housewives to fight with housewives. I need moms to fight over dancing. I need fights, right? Whatever it is, fight, fight, fight. We love that. And we take that in. Right? Drinking parties are all about self-indulgence. We are an overindulgent society. Bigger, more, varied. That's true. And then lawless idols. We have all kinds of lawless idols. Money will save me. Relationship will save me. Sex will save me. A divorce will save me. A new president will save me. The old president will save me. Everything we're looking to save us, everything but Jesus. And, and so Peter says, that's the old way of thinking. That's the old life. That is the pre-gospel life. Don't return to those things. Don't waste your time going to those things. Don't waste your time ingesting those things. Don't waste your time being entertained by those things. Don't waste your time hoping for those things because they're never going to satisfy ever, ever. See, all of these things are like an alloy mixed into the system of our society. And so in a real powerful way, we have to resist. And as you resist, you will find resistance. In fact, in verse 4, he says, With respect to these things, the Gentiles, the unbelieving world, with respect to these things, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So the more you say, you know what, I, I don't want this a part of my life. I don't want to make these my passions. I'm going to be really different. I'm going to live uniquely for Christ. I'm going to stand out. I'll take the suffering because I believe at the top of the tree there's greater fruit up there than there is laying on the ground. The more you do that, the more the world's going to look at you and go, you've got to be kidding me. Are you for real? Because for them, this world isn't debauchery. It's liberty. It's freedom. We're no longer bound by the restraints of being told there's moral right and moral wrong. We're no longer bound by the restraints that has some code of sexual purity. We're not bound by the restraints of an all-consuming God that has an overarching standard. We're not bound by any of that. We get to do what we want, how we want, when we want, why we want. Unless, of course, it's somebody that's not consenting, and then it's a different deal. But even then, we can sometimes ride over the top of other people that aren't consenting because we want to. Right? It's like that. And, and, and so, again, the world's going to look sometimes at the Christian and go, Man, we don't get you guys. We just don't get, we don't know where you're coming from. Really? You think you should wait for marriage? Really? You're kidding. Right? Like, like there's just going to be those kinds of things. And not only do they not understand, but then he says, and they malign you. They malign you. They go, the Bible? <laughs> right. Sin? No. Jesus is the only way? That's cute. Right? And they're going to say, man, you're just narrow and you're archaic. And, and, and you're not in touch with reality. And whatever, if you want to believe and make believe gods, that's your deal. But that can happen. In fact, it was interesting. My, my wife had gone on a trip <clears throat> a couple months back um, to Hawaii with some friends. And she was having a discussion with some people that they had met there. And, and somehow it came up that, that uh, Ellen and I were married right out of high school and, and like, they're like, so you've only been with one person your whole life? 
And she's like, yeah. And they're like, that's weird. She's like, what? <laughs> you know, and, and, and there was one person there was like, wow, that's really kind of interesting. Almost like, like she was an exotic animal or something. Like, wow. <laughs> I didn't even know. I thought these were extinct, you know. And like, like, but way more, it was almost like she goes, I felt persecuted through it. Like, oh, that's lame. And you, you've not lived until you've been with other people kind of thing. So it, it, not only did they not understand her, they almost began to kind of mock her, like, oh, little Miss Goody Two-Shoes over there, right? And, and I remember she called me that night. She goes, that was just the weirdest experience. She goes, I liked it as far as, like, it was a good conversation, and, and I felt like I really communicated my heart accurately. She goes, but it was just really weird to be, like, the person that was the oddest one in the room and almost like I'd been irresponsible with my sexuality for leaving it only with my husband, you know, like it was a strange and curious thing. And so they're going to look and say, eh, that's a strange one. But here's the deeper reality. In the end, they don't answer to us. In the end, we don't answer to them. But everyone answers to God. Right? So things can get said back and forth. Things can be communicated across the bow. But in the end, all answer to God, and that's why he says they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The truth is, one day, every single person will stand before God, and when they do, it's like there's these cosmic Miranda rights, you know? And, and basically, it has nothing to do with the right to remain silent, but it is saying everything you have done can and will be used against you in this court. And you are your own attorney, and you have no advocate, and you have no citizenship in this place, and you have no ability to claim your innocence because we've recorded all of your guilt. Open the book. And the book will be open, and all the guilt and all the offense and everything that anybody's ever done is going to be in that book if they don't know Jesus. And there, Jesus will say, here's what you've done. And, and you didn't seek me, and you didn't desire me, and you desired to do your own thing. And even when you heard about me, you didn't like me because you thought I was too narrow and too abrupt and had too many standards, and you wanted to do your own thing, and you did your own thing. And now, today is the day where you give an account of doing your own thing. Now, here's the most kind of twisted part about it. Um, when the person is there uh, in the courtroom giving and pleading their case— what they're not going to be tempted to do is to say, I'm really sorry, I totally didn't mean it, I totally blew it, I totally see clearly, there is a God, I really want you, please take me. That's not what's going to happen. Because the reality of sin is it twists us. The reality of sin, it becomes our friend, it bottles us within ourselves. And so really, when the person is before God, and they're at the great judge, no more potently will they have a hate for him than at that point. Because the God that they just didn't want in life, they will despise in death because they will see purity perfectly and they will resist that purity as much as possible. They won't want that. I know we all go, no, no, if they had proof of God, they would want God. Ask people, hey, if I could prove God, would you believe? They would say, sure. If you say, if it's the God of the Bible and what he says you would have to live by, do you still want him? They go, no, that God's mean. I wouldn't want that God. Right? So when people die, they will be locked in their own idolatry, their own sin. 
And they will say, no, 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 I, I know you say that, but I did this, and I was a good person, and you had too many standards, and I wanted to do my thing, and you were getting in the way, and I love what I love more than I love what you love, and you know what? I would rather have judgment than the judge. In fact, some great theologians have said, hell is locked from the inside. Because people say, if I have to decide between being my own God or surrendering to a God, I want to be my own God. I'd rather reign in hell, right, than be a servant in heaven. And so, in a weird, strange sort of way, they'll say, you know what, I, I prefer my own passions, my own pleasure. I, I want all eternity to be surrounded by the rotting fruit. The only oddity is, the only part of that desire for the rotting fruit is within the person. They don't have access to any of it. The only thing they have is the appetite for it. They don't have access to the fruit. But for all eternity, they will just wish and want, oh, to have my lust back, oh, to have my porn back, oh, to have my spending back, oh, to have my food back. Oh, I just eat it and eat it and eat it. Oh, I just spend it and spend it and spend it. Oh, I just view it and view it and view it. And they become lost within themselves. Right? Because they give an account to the judge. The judge says you're guilty, and they say, fine, I'll take my guilt because I don't want you. That's what makes hell so bleak, so dark, so lifeless forever that there's no life to be found within it. But then there is good news. That is the bad news. But in verse 6, he says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh in the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter takes us to a very dark place. Everybody will give an account. Everybody will face some kind of judgment. Either Jesus was judged for you and you're righteous, or Jesus was not judged for you and you face your own judgment, right? So it's one or the other. But then Peter says, ah, oh, but this is why the gospel was preached. The gospel was preached because God seeks the lost. God seeks the hater. God seeks the broken. God seeks the destitute. God seeks those who are estranged from him and hating of him, and he grabs them by grace, and he transforms their life. Right? So anybody, anybody, man, I'm, I'm telling you, anybody that says, you know, I see my sin, and I need this God, that's what the gospel's for. This is what grace is all about. And so Peter says, ah, but this is why the gospel was preached, because he rescues those lost in their perversions. He rescues those who every night need to guzzle it down to deal with the problems. He rescues those that are riotous and rambunctious. He rescues those who want to just indulge in everything and spend and be bitter and be gossipy and everything. He rescues them. That's what the gospel is about. It's about rescue. And he rescues them so they might live not by ways of the flesh, but by ways of the spirit. And what he's saying here is, um, even though you may die, and the world will judge you as one that, man, you didn't live it up. You lived by all these codes and rules, rules and creeds, and you said no to this, and you said yes to God, and you thought there was fruit in the tree, and then you died. Right? In, in some countries, you, you died even prematurely because they took your life because you believed there was fruit in the tree. You, you, you said Jesus the one way, and I'm going to believe in him, everything. The world's going to look and say, what a waste of life. Here's the thing, when we do that, all you're doing is storing up for real life. All of the missing out in this life is preparing for real life. All of the suffering in this life is stowing away for real life. 
right? And even as you stow, when God is your all-consuming delight, there is joy even in the suffering. There is peace even in the chaos. There is reward even in the opposition. And then all of that goes into the life to come. And so you may be judged in the flesh as somebody that's wasting their life and not having fun, but really you are just storing up for the life to come. You are living by the Spirit who is life. To overcome your sin with delight. Overwhelm sinners with hope, right? And overturn death with the message of life. I close with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, as we don't look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reminder that there's something more. And I pray that we will stop going for the fruit on the ground. I pray that we will stop just saying, where's the lowest hanging pleasure? That's what I want. I pray that we will stop thinking this world rewards its own. I pray that we will stop thinking that the promises of Scripture are just spiritual statements meant to be encouraging for a moment. I pray that we will long for you. I pray that we will crave you. I pray that we will become discontent with the earthly nature of things. And that we will long not to be so heavenly minded we're of no earthly good, but rather that we would be so heavenly minded we are profound earthly good. Because we offer something better, something fuller, something richer, something lasting. I pray that you will seize upon our souls and show us yourself. I pray this morning or for there are those in this room that do not know you. This is your day. You just say, Jesus, take me. I have sinned. I have been craving lesser fruits that hurt more than help, that empty more than fill me up. Jesus, take my sin. Take my shame. Take my guilt. Free me. Man, this is your day to make that your prayer and your way. Maybe some of us in this room, some of these things, you saw the Pornhub thing and you went, wow, I've been there in the last month and I have been eating rotten fruit. Jesus says, I want to deal with that so that you can be free of that, that you can have a life where you go, wow, why did I ever even want that? Or you go, man, I have been somebody of overabundance and I'm spending way more than I have and it's putting me in a place of depression. I think if I buy the next thing, it will fill me up and instead it drains me. And Jesus says, I want to rid you of that shame. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's just within your marriage. There's all kinds of sins swirling about and somebody has to say no to it and turn it off and, and say, I want something different. I want to pursue God's pleasures and I want to climb the tree and find the highest fruits in him. And then that distills into the family. Maybe that's your thing. I don't know what it is, but today is the day not only for the lost to come to Christ, but for those who are in Christ to say, you know what, I'm done wasting my time. And I, and I want something different. Hit the reset in me, Jesus. I want to experience what this is talking about. I want to taste and see that you are good. I want to, as David said, drink from the river of your pleasures. I don't want to set my affection on lesser things. I want to set my affection on the highest thing. Just make that your prayer, your way. He wants to do that work. And then you go to war with yourself today, tomorrow, the next day as you surrender to him. Jesus, I pray that you do that in all of us. I pray that we will need you 
man wants you and crave you in real ways. I thank you. I praise you. And again, just need you in your name.